Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, November 20th, and we're talking about the Republican tax bills. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, and I'm joined by Matt Frankel. Matt, good to have you here. Always good to be here. Fantastic. So, listeners, I'm letting you know now, we had a power outage at Full HQ earlier today, and that may be messing up our tech a little bit. And so if the sound quality is a little bit worse than you're used to, please accept my apologies in advance. It's not you, it's us. So, thinking about these tax bills a little, a little bit, episodes like today's happen when I choose to interpret financials as things that are financial in nature, as opposed to merely financial stocks. Personally, I enjoy talking about personal finance and other broader things that affect our financial picture, and so I'm going to live with it. Hopefully, dear listeners, you're happy with that decision as well. So, we'll get to talking taxes in just a minute. But before we hop in, like I mentioned in most episodes, we cannot possibly go into the level of detail that we might like to in a 20-some minute show. But we have some excellent content published on these bills and their potential effects. I've curated what I believe to be the best articles on these tax proposals. So shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com to get that list and my commentary around them. Happy to send it along. Again, that's industryfocus@fool.com. Okay, so if we're going to talk about the GOP tax plan, the first thing we have to admit is that there isn't one unified plan. The House of Representatives has passed a tax bill, the Senate is considering a second in addition to the House's, and it isn't clear where President Trump will fall on either or both proposals. There are some additional considerations, too. While both houses are controlled by the Republican Party, the narrow margin in the Senate means that a handful of Republican moderates think folks like Senator Murkowski from Alaska, Senator Collins from Maine, and Senator Heller from Nevada have a lot more influence than uh, more moderate forces in the House, where the larger Republican majority requires less compromise. Right. It's, this also makes it considerably harder to get tax reform passed in the Senate, simply because you can only afford to lose two Republican votes. And that's assuming that Vice President Pence is the tiebreaker. Right. And, of so, course, also that no Democrats vote for the bill, which may or may not end up yeah, being the case. No we'll Democrats see. vote for the bills, which that's a good assumption at this point. Sure. Um, there's also, on the other end of the spectrum, the more fiscally conservative Republicans, names like uh, Senator Rand Paul come to mind. And they can't – they have to compromise somehow between the – the left side of the Republican Party, the names that you just mentioned, and the far right, like Senator Paul, and try not to alienate anybody, which is a, not an easy task. And this is why major tax reform very rarely happens. Of course, we're not prognosticators here. I have no idea whether these bills are going to ultimately become law, but it's certainly interesting to talk through some of those potential differences. And of course, a clear example of this push-pull is on tax brackets. You look at the Senate proposal, it keeps all seven current tax brackets we have for uh, income tax, but changes them a little bit, while the House simplifies down to three. Right. Um, the House's plan is more in line with what uh, President Trump was saying on the campaign trail. It goes more along the lines of simplifying, not just being a tax cut. Mm as in instead of seven brackets, there's three, and then there's the they're keeping the highest rate for people who make over a million dollars, I believe. 
So it's more of a simplification than just a cut, whereas the Senate essentially lowers the tax rates just across the board, with the exception of the the lowest, the 10 percent, and then the 35 percent bracket. Uh, it's just, it's, like I said, it's more of a cut um, than a simplification, which is kind of the goal of reform. So the question is, are we going to get a tax reform or are we going to get a tax cut? Those are due different things. Right. Definitely. And speaking of tax cuts, generally speaking, you look at both bills. One of the things that they have in common is that they both double the standard deduction. Right. They both roughly double the standard deduction. Um, the House's bill is slightly has slightly higher numbers in the language. I'm, I think that could just be because the House's bill is based on the 2018 figures and the Senate's is compared to the 2017 IRS figures. But under the current law, the single uh, single filers would get a $6,500 standard deduction and married couples would get 13000 The House and Senate makes those roughly 12000 and 24000 respectively. But they get rid of the personal exemption, which kind of, in, for certain people, it would still come out ahead. And for others, like like me, for example, it would hurt because... You get a personal exemption for every member of your household, and large families could definitely lose with this. Right. And that's interesting because when you when I was thinking about beneficiaries of the bill this morning, one of the folks that one of the groups that really came to sprang to mind was families, right? Because of course the adoption tax credit is preserved. You see some expansion of the child tax credit, and of course there's the family flexible credit also introduced in I think the House bill. But it's interesting because, as you pointed out, losing that personal exemption could make a big difference. Yeah, definitely. Um, the personal exemption, it depends what the child tax credit winds up being. Um, in the House's bill, it's currently set at 1600 the version that just passed. Whereas in the Senate's bill, it's set a little bit higher at 2000 There's that family flexible credit, which in the House's bill can be taken for not only non-child dependents, but for the taxpayer and their spouse themselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the Senate, as it's worded, it's just for dependents that aren't children. So there's a whole lot of, you know, wiggle room in the bill right now as it's written to where we can't really tell who's going to be the, the winners and losers. And this is one of the key things that I think anyone listening to this episode or really any commentary on bills that have not yet been signed into law should really consider is that there has to be this big pillar of salt because so much changes between when a bill is introduced and when it's signed into law. And things that may benefit one group are often balanced out by things that can sort of harm that group as well. That said, it does seem to me that there are some reasonably clear beneficiaries in this bill. I would say companies with lower corporate tax rates are a pretty clear beneficiary. Sure. It's not just the corporate tax rate. It's um, the immediate expense, uh, immediate deduction of business expenses is another big thing. Uh, repatriation of foreign cash is big for companies like Apple, who have over $200 billion overseas. And let's talk about that so a little a lot. bit. Let's, oh, talk, let's talk about repatriation a little bit, because I think that's something that a lot of people don't necessarily understand. Sure. Right now, if, when a company earns profits overseas and brings them back, they're taxed at the normal 35% corporate tax rate. 
So this incentivizes companies to leave their money overseas, not bring it back to the United States and reinvest in and etc. So for in Apple's case, for example, they have almost almost two hundred fifty billion dollars overseas now. People often wonder why they don't bring it back and you know acquire another company or pay a bigger dividend or something to that effect. And the reason is that they would take a massive tax hit if they did that, something to about between seventy and eighty billion dollars, I believe. So repatriation allows them to bring the money back at a lower rate. Currently there's um one of the two bills is proposing a 10% rate. The other is proposing 14%. Both of those look a whole lot better than 35. So Apple would, for example, would stand to you know save $50 billion from repatriation if this is passed. This could be a big, big difference in terms of how much they could pay to shareholders and just the financial flexibility in general. Right. And of course from Congress's perspective, what they would hope would happen with repatriation is that the company brings the money back to the United States and then invests in more jobs in the U.S. Because when you think about tax reform, that's usually one of the primary goals, is to put money back in the pockets of job creators. Now, one of the differences you'll see in the parties is sort of who they view as the folks who should get the money so that they can then spend it. But that's certainly one of the intentions here in both lowering corporate tax rates and in making repatriation a lot cheaper. Definitely. Um, like, like I said, with Apple, they could theoretically bring that money back and open a new plant to, to expand one of their product lines or acquire a new uh, one of their competitors and, and create jobs in that manner. Or, I mean, another way they could, another way this could be beneficial is to, you know, pay a bigger dividend to their shareholders and, and stimulate the economy that way. Um, all told, there's over, I think at last count, about $2 trillion overseas. So this is no small amount of money that would be coming back. Absolutely. One of the other groups that seems poised to benefit in a lot of ways from these tax bills are the wealthy. You look at a potential repeal or at least reduction of the estate tax, the alternative minimum tax, and of course charitable contributions being preserved in reform. That's not a clean sweep, of course. There are some things that could be less beneficial to the wealthy, but there are a lot of things for them to like in these bills. Definitely. Um, the estate tax is one that only kind of affects the top few percent of house, or I think it's 0.2% of households pay the estate tax. Yeah. Um, but there's good arguments to, to be made for the changes to all three of them, whether you it's it's absolutely a tax cut for the rich, but the estate tax, the argument is these people pay tax on the money when they earned it in the first place. Why should it be a tax a second time when they die? Uh, the alternative minimum tax was originally implemented to make sure that people in the upper, upper income brackets paid their fair share no matter how many deductions they had. But lately, just kind of the way the numbers work out, it's affecting more and more middle class families. So you can make the argument it's not really doing what it was intended to do. And charitable contributions, in in theory, it's not just a benefit for the rich. Anybody who itemizes deductions can take advantage of it. But the vast majority of that tax benefit goes to the, the wealthiest Americans. Right. And one of the issues with the alternative minimum tax is that... So essentially what it says is, as you pointed out, Matt, 
that you, if you're making a certain amount, no matter how many deductions you take, you still have to pay some sort of minimum percentage in taxes. The alternative minimum tax was never indexed to inflation, and so it never increased except when Congress stepped in and increased it, which is one of the reasons why it keeps affecting households who aren't making you know, point the top, they're not in the 0.1% of the wealthy or anything like that anymore. And so that's one of the reasons why um, a potential repeal might make a lot of sense. The other piece, though, and this is sort of on the flip side, is that the mortgage interest deduction is actually reduced in the House bill. Let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. This is um, this could affect people differently depending on where they live. If you live in an area where the cost of living is high, um, the new mortgage deduction will be capped at uh, half a million dollars of initial mortgage debt. So, if in a higher cost area like where, where Michael is right now, <laughs> the DC uh, area, five hundred thousand dollars is a middle class house. That's not rich people. Whereas in certain parts of the country, like South Carolina, where I'm calling in from, a $500,000 house is the, you know, top few percent. So this is a cut, or a, not necessarily a cut, but it can disproportionately affect people depending on where they live and can have an unintended effect of inc- reducing the amount of deductions for certain middle-class households in places like Washington, D.C., uh, New York, New Jersey, certain parts of California. Um, the, the, the Senate's bill keeps the maximum deduction at the same million-dollar mortgage debt cap, which pretty much includes middle-class houses all over the country. Maybe if there's a few exceptions. Yeah, but I, I have a hard time thinking of uh, a house that costs a million bucks that is completely middle. You know, I'd, like at that point, I feel like we can probably all agree that they're that that family's doing just fine. Right, but half a million dollars doesn't really go that far where you are. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and while I am a recent homeowner, and thank you, by the way, to the folks who sent in the congratulatory and or encouraging emails, my house did not cost nearly a million dollars. So we'll turn to the potential losers in these tax negotiations in just a minute. But first, a message from our sponsor. Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender, Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. All right, Matt. So we've talked about some details and some potential winners, at least the folks who seem to disproportionately benefit a little bit from these tax bills. Let's talk about potential losers a little bit. Um, So one of the things that really jumped out at me is that the House proposal repeals the student loan deduction. That would certainly seem to, uh, sorry, the student loan interest deduction. That would certainly seem to be a pretty big benefit for students that is basically going to disappear if that bill becomes law. Yeah, it would absolutely affect student loan borrowers, especially with student loan debt going higher and higher in recent years. 
But it's not only the student loan deduction. The Republican bill actually makes a whole lot of changes for for college students, both in school and out of school. Um, for example, the lifetime learning credit would go away. That's the one that kicks in after you've used up the American Opportunity Credit or for grad students, or if you're just taking a class kind of for personal enrichment. The whole credit that covers that would go away. Um, and it would... The bill would also make, um, right now, if your employer reimburses you for tuition up to a certain amount, it can, it doesn't count as taxable income. This current bill would change that. Um, same with uh, grad students who get tuition waivers. Uh, there's a lot of experts in the student loan world calling this bill an attack on grad students for this reason. It just it would make that taxable income, which a lot of college students can't afford because if you get a grad student tuition waiver, that could be tens of thousands of dollars that you would now have to pay a tax on. So this bill has several changes that college students need to be aware of. Yeah, my best friend is a PhD student, and he would have a lot of trouble, let's say, making ends meet if he had to cover the uh, taxes on his wage tuition through his student stipend. Let's also talk about taxpayers in high t- higher tax states. So this is known as the SALT deduction or state and local taxes. It would go away entirely in the Senate bill, and it would be pres- the only part of it that would be preserved is the property tax deduction up to a certain amount in the House bill. Right. That's definitely a, a move to appease uh, the more moderate Republicans who live in these high-cost states like New York, New Jersey. Um, basically, the House's bill would allow people to deduct up to, to $10,000 of property tax each year. Um, and if you live in a low-tax state, that's really not a, as big of a deal. But this also doesn't – neither bill allows anybody to deduct any – um, state income taxes, which you live in California, New York, New Jersey, any of those states with a high marginal income tax rates, you would be a big loser of this bill potentially, uh, even in the middle class. I actually think the SALT deduction is, over the past few years, has been the highest dollar IRS deduction available, including mortgage debt and pretty much anything else um, <clears throat> by a significant margin. So this is a big deal for um, and it disproportionately affects, like I said, places like California, New York, New Jersey. I think D.C. Is D.C. a high-tax area? It is. So it, people up in those areas would are not fans of removing the SALT deduction and are aggressively lobbying against that. So we'll have to see if that makes its way into a final bill or not. Absolutely. The other thing that's interesting is that the way Social Security raises are calculated could potentially change. So in the Senate bill, there is a proposal on the table to change how Social Security cost of living increases are calculated each year. So currently, they're weighted by a consumer price, by the consumer price index, but the proposal would be to change over to what's called the chained consumer price index, or or CPI, which would essentially likely lower the raises that seniors might get from Social Security each year. And this is actually the opposite of what many experts say they need to do. Uh, Currently, these are based on what's called the CPIW, which is 
kind of a basket of costs that affects working age individuals. This the chain CPI would effectively lower the rate at which inflation is calculated. Whereas there's another one called the CPIE, I believe it's called. I'm not sure the abbreviation, but the CP, the CPI that is kind of weighted toward the elderly. So this would put more weight on things like healthcare expenses. Um, seniors actually tend to experience higher inflation than the rest of the population, not lower. So this is kind of going in the wrong direction. Right. And that's certainly a big deal for seniors. Finally, let's talk briefly, and I mean very briefly, about the Affordable Care Act, also known more commonly as Obamacare. The Senate bill would change how uh, ACA requirements are done. So currently, the way it works with the Affordable Care Act is that you have to have insurance or you pay a fine. The Senate bill would basically take that fine and reduce it to zero dollars, which would essentially make the well, which would essentially defang the individual mandate. This was a kind of re- request of the president. I'm pretty sure is why it's in the bill. I think this was a subject of a of a tweet shortly before the bill came out. So this is um, now whether you're in favor or not of repealing the individual mandate is another issue. Whether you want to attach it to tax reform is another is kind of the subject on the table right now. And we we all saw what kind of success Congress had with passing anything related to the Affordable Care Act, even among Republicans. So this is just kind of, at this moment, thought of as something that could unnecessarily complicate the process. So I I would not be surprised to see that go away when we have any kind of unified bill. But for the time being, this is what the Senate wants to attach to its bill and their rationale for doing so is it would raise money that would pay for some of the other other tax cuts. Sure. So we'll have to see what eventually will come into the final bill, but I don't see anything related to healthcare being in there just because Republicans really want to get this done, and that makes it much more complicated to do. Yes, and one of the key things to remember whenever thinking about politics in general is that there is a lot of gamesmanship going on. And so you'll initially put in something so that you can then be negotiated out of it into something that everyone can kind of agree to. It's part of kind of marking out the edges of the debate. And so while we've talked about a lot of things here that might be interesting to you, might be exciting to you, might be scary to you, depending on what groups you belong to, how your specific tax situation works, keep in mind that we are still fairly early in this tax reform push. And so a lot of things are still up to change. And frankly, when radical tax reform is proposed, it almost never passes in anywhere uh, as radical a form as it originally was. Right. The, um, The thing to remember is that before any tax reform bill can be passed, the House and Senate have to both pass identical bills. And we're very far from that. We haven't even passed the Senate's version of the bill yet. So there's, there, we're still in the early stages of getting this done, is kind of the point. Right. So if you want more detail on all of this, because frankly, we have just scratched the very surface of what is a complicated issue, shoot us an email at industryfocus.fool.com. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've got a number of pieces of content on fool.com that I think will be very helpful to anyone wanting to learn a little bit more about these bills and some of the potential outcomes. I'm happy to send along 
some of that best content, best tax content that we've produced about these bills. That's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments, you can always reach us at industryfocus@fool.com. As always, people on the show may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening and fool on. We'll be right back.